When Robert Wheeler was just eight years old, his mother took him to the Chicago Air Show. It changed his life. From that moment on, Wheeler became obsessed with just one goal, to become a fighter pilot. And it was just something that was downtown. And I'll never forget it. I was eight years old and I saw these airplanes flying and I decided right there that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a combat Air Force pilot. I believed in the country. I still do to this day. I believed in everything that it was. My father was a disabled veteran. So I would hear the stories of what happened in World War II. And seeing that kind of galvanized me, if you will, and put me on a path that uh, probably led me to all the things that I did. Because at that point on, I said, okay, this is what I want to do. How do I get there? And I built a path at eight years old, as, as silly as that sounds, and kind of kept on that path all the way through. Hello, everyone. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Wheeler more than fulfilled his childhood dream. During his 32-year career in the U.S. Air Force, he served as a combat pilot in the B-52 and B-2. He earned more than 5,000 flight hours and seven operational commands, including wing commands in the two largest bomber wings in the U.S. Air Force. He retired in March 2016. Major General Wheeler's decorated career in the military culminated in his role as DOD Deputy Chief Information Officer for Information Infrastructure and Command Control Communications Computers, or C4, at the Office of the Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon. That's just one of the numerous leadership roles in the U.S. military that Wheeler has been tasked with, both here at home and in hotspots around the world. In those critical roles, Wheeler obtained a wealth of knowledge about the ways of Vladimir Putin, and he has some key insights into the trajectory of the Russian president's invasion of Ukraine and Ukraine's surge of winds in the ground game in recent weeks. General Wheeler, welcome to When It Mattered. Welcome. I appreciate that very much, Tetra, and I thank you for having me on here today. Let's open by describing that day at the Chicago Air Show when you were eight years old, what you saw and felt as you hung out with your mom and why it was so transformative. So I was born on the south side of Chicago. Um, in fact, uh, pretty much typical in that city area there, kind of like the Irish community right at the edge. And and so I did typical things of that particular time frame. But it was my mom who took me to the Chicago Air Show. And it was just something that was downtown. And I'll never forget it. I was eight years old and I saw these airplanes flying and I decided right there that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a combat Air Force pilot. I believed in the country. I still do to this day. I believe in everything that it was. My father was a disabled veteran. So I would hear the stories of what happened in World War II and seeing that kind of galvanized me, if you will, and put me on a path that uh, probably led me to all the things that I did. Because at that point on, I said, OK, this is what I want to do. How do I get there? And I built a path at eight years old, as, as silly as that sounds, and kind of kept on that path all the way through. So, you know, most kids don't fulfill their eight-year-old self's dreams. They don't have kind of that almost obsessive zeal. And I mean that in a very good way here that you demonstrated after the air show. So how did you keep going? You know, this is before like, you know, the world opened up to us with emails and, you know, Google searches and all of that knowledge that is now at our fingertips. You were eight years old living on the south side of Chicago. And you're, how did you go from seeing those fighter pilots kind of painting the sky with their extraordinary acrobatics to becoming a fighter pilot yourself? What does an eight-year-old do in that situation? So um, a lot of things, actually. So I uh, I actually contacted a recruiter at about eight and a half years old. As, as silly as not, <laughs> he, he listened to me. And so he talked to me and he gave me some things to read. Uh, I still, I was a paper boy at the time. I had a morning route in the summer and a, an afternoon route. And I used to always go by the... Um, 
the Chicago Public Library. And I'd get off my bicycle. I had an old Schwinn bike that had a little thing in the front. If you can imagine all these newspapers sticking in the front. And, and actually one of the places where I dropped the newspaper off was the Chicago Public Library. So I dropped one off and I go read about the latest things in that area, grab a newspaper in there. And, and, and frankly, when I was rolling papers in the morning and the afternoon, I'd see articles about the Air Force and I'd read them real quick and I would do that. And so I got into kind of a lot of activities in that area. I mean, I was into Estes model rockets, if you know what they are. They're little, they're little um, rockets that have these little engines you put in there, and they're gunpowder engines. And you know, it, it, there's a lot of aerodynamics associated with it, and there's little electronic things you can put in there. So I would take my money for my paper route because we didn't have a lot of money, and I'd buy all these these fun things, and I would shoot them off, and and that would be one thing I would do. And I got heavily into uh, if you're ham radio, amateur radio, so I built a lot of electronic stuff. And, and frankly, my uncle uh, was, uh, he was in the Navy at the time. And so he started helping me in that particular arena to try to think about the electronics and do it. And, and I, the biggest thing that that recruiter told me though, is math and science, math and science. That's how you're going to get into the Air Force to be a pilot. Make sure that you're physically healthy. You do your athletics. And then he said, but, but focus on math and science. And that's what I did. So when you contacted that recruiter at age eight and a half, what was his response? Well, it's kind of funny. He goes, what caused you to do this? And I said, well, my mom took me to the air show. He chuckled a little bit, but he listened and and he talked to me and it it left an impression on me. So, uh, so my dad passed away when I was seven years old. So I had a lot of people that kind of came in and out of my life and males. And, and frankly, I had a, a lot of uh, strong women in my family. They, uh, my grandmother uh, uh, came from Austria. She, um, ran from the, the Nazis per se, came across to, to the U.S. And because my dad had passed away, it was my grandmother that was home a lot because my mother had to work. And so she uh, she was very strong in how she viewed uh, raising children. Um, and she would help contact leaders in the area that were male in the sense that to give me some kind of um, something to look up to. And so I would kind of talk to them about my dreams and they would give me ideas and and the recruiter I would contact. I probably contacted three recruiters before I was 16 years old just to talk to them to see if I was on the right path. And it was just the telephone, the Chicago Public Library and friends in the neighborhood, honestly. And your your grandmother, you said, would reach out to leaders in the area and they would respond. I mean, who did you talk to at that age? Yeah. So, so it'd be funny. There's a couple of business owners that had had previous military experience. One of them owned a theater. And so he, he talked to me in that particular arena. Um, uh, there was a fire department. You know, you kind of look at the Chicago Fire, the TV show. Well, in my younger day, there really was something like that. And, and again, that was another part of my paper route. I dropped that off. And, and some of these guys were ex-military. I would talk to them about their experiences at that particular time. And remember, we're in a pretty big transition. Because after the, before in the Vietnam War to after the Vietnam War, it became the all-volunteer force. Very, very different military. So I would get different opinions, and I was kind of cataloging those in my head. And so my grandmother would help and she would talk to folks and uh, she was involved in the church, big time Catholic church in the area. Remember Irish Catholic, you get a lot of uh, uh, of, of the Catholic churches in, in the South side of Chicago. It's, it's almost Louisiana in a sense, it's organized by parishes. So they would contact very, you're in this parish or that parish, they'd contact some of the leadership in there and they, they'd actually say, Oh, Hey dad, this guy served a bunch of time. Oh, he's an air force pilot. Then they would have him, talk to me and and it, it kind of kept me going 
That's amazing. Now, you mentioned your father, and he passed away, as you said, when you were seven, and you went to the air show at eight, so he kind of missed hearing from you about your dream. And you also knew some about him, but not a lot. And he had a very tragic health uh, story. Tell us a little bit about your father and his, his yeah. role in your life. So he was a decoder in World War II, so he would fly in into different places, typically on a glider in places like the Battle of Sicily, behind enemy lines, go try to decode things, send stuff forward. And we didn't know a lot about him because he, after he spent time in Europe, he ended up in Africa. Uh, he was hurt in the Italian campaign there in Sicily, the Battle of Sicily, as they called it. And then he went over into Africa and he caught a, a, a specifically virulent form of tuberculosis. And it was this form of tuberculosis that couldn't be uh, stopped with the present drugs, which I understand were pretty basic at that time. And so they ended up uh, doing surgery, and the surgery was major to remove um, the uh, tuberculosis or whatever it is, the, uh, the problem area of his lung. And when they did that, he died in the table. Died for somewhere between five and seven minutes. A lot of oxygen loss became paralyzed to the neck down. So he ended up um, coming... Uh, back to the U.S. In a, in a in a rather tragic state, to be frank, and so that was how I knew him. But the interesting part was we didn't have any records on it because if you remember the fire in St. Louis, that was where his records were held, so they were burned. And all of his other duffel bag, uh, they were very worried about the disease at the time that it could last quote up to 17 years, what the doctors thought. So they isolated that particular bag, and I was not allowed to look at it, open it, or have access to it until the 17-year time frame was over. So when that happened, we waited 17 years, and I opened it up, and it was a treasure trove of, of pictures and his wallet, letters to my mom, um, things that were going on in that particular area. He was at the Potsdam conference. He ended up doing decoding for the president, his thoughts in general, nothing specific, of course, uh, but where he kind of viewed the world situation, his battle stars, which I had no idea about. I had no idea that that had happened. He didn't like to talk about it because uh, he could still speak and have a discussion, uh, even though he was paralyzed at that particular point. It wasn't always as articulate, but he could talk about it. He just didn't. So I got to learn about my father well after his death and only through that particular duffel bag that we were, were able to open up after 17 years. And the fire you mentioned was at the Army Records Center. So it, uh, you only had what was in the duffel bag was your memories of your father, essentially. That was it. That was really, there was a record that he was in. There was a record that this was his time, that he was a disabled American veteran, but the specifics of all of it were gone. They were just burned with, with the fire in St. Louis. And you would have been nine at the time. Do you remember the day, I guess, you and your mother opened the duffel bag? Was that how it happened? Um, yeah, it was kind of like quite by accident. We had forgotten about it and we were cleaning the basement and they had let us have it after 17 years. It was down there. And I do remember, I don't remember the exact day, but I can picture it in my head when it, when it happened. And I do remember my mother being a little bit uptight about opening it up for the reasons that we discussed in the past and not sure what to expect. And so we opened it up, we went through it and, uh, there was a lot of tears. I'll just leave it at that. We've talked a little bit about your father. Tell us a little bit about your mother, because she also was a very extraordinary woman. Yep, yeah, sure. So for my mother, um, it was a lot about taking care of the family as best she could. It was a different time. She was born in 1920. And when my dad became a, a disabled veteran, the veterans system at that time, and it's very different today because I've been in them today. 
and I'm much more proud of where how we take care of our veterans. At that time, it was after Vietnam and it and World War II, and it was not good. Um, I would come into a veteran center, and I I still to this day remember those smells of my dad in that bed and not having a chance to go to the bathroom in three days and basically uh, living in his urine at that particular time. And so my mother brought him home and that was a very focal time for her because she had to make money in the South side of Chicago to do that. And so she started as a secretary and became the president of a small company. And that was how we got our money. And we went bankrupt a couple of times actually just paying medical bills, uh, but she still did it and she provided and she did a great job in that particular arena. She was, as we talked about uh, before this particular uh, podcast. Uh, she was one of the first, if not the first, according to her uh, obituary, she was the first woman in Chicago to get a mortgage. And uh, she, 1961, she had to put uh, $40,000 down on a $44,000 house, so not much of a mortgage, uh, but that was where she was. And um, and so she was a pretty tough woman, and she was a big athlete as well. Uh, she believed that uh, boys shouldn't be hugged too much. And so, um, and she also believed that uh, Occasionally, boys, depending upon the personality set, needed corporal punishment. And that definitely happened when I when I walked outside the uh, allowed bounds. I'll put it that way. And so, um, from that particular perspective, uh, uh, that was how I was raised. You know, it's kind of interesting that your father was a decoder, and you're deeply, deeply. Your whole career has been steeped in information technology and command control communications. You know, information. Um, uh, transmission and all of this, and and also his uh, his war, you know his his fighting for the country during World War II. Do you think that if that bag had been opened sooner, that your life would have been different in any way, or it just seems like you you went out to his steps footsteps, even though you really didn't know a lot about him? Yeah, that's a fair point, Chitra. I, you know, I'm, if I take it from a hindsight perspective, I I don't think I was trying to follow my own dream, but the parallels are actually somewhat striking when you start to think about it. Um, part of it, I also would argue, Church, was, was when the Air Force, you know, as, as I was telling you, we didn't have a ton of money. So I focused on my math and science through high school. I had some really good teachers, and I truly mean that, that actually had a lot of patience with me and uh, really focused me and, you know, in finishing up math. And it allowed me to get a scholarship through ROTC, but there was a catch on that. And that catch was, is that you had to have a hard science or a engineering degree to become a pilot. So again, on my pathway, I, I didn't think about becoming an engineer at that time. I was wanted to be a pilot. So whatever it took to get through that there, that gateway, I would do. So I became an engineer and it was really something that, that impacted me throughout my life afterwards, um, using the grades that I had gotten from teachers that really focused and helped me in school and the scholarship. And so I became an engineer and then went into pilot training right after. So it's kind of all those paths. I think, I think your point's well taken that there are personality characteristics that probably are from my dad that led me to that, but it was also the air force's demand, if you will, that, Hey, if you want a scholarship, you want to go to college and become a, an air force pilot, you're going to become an engineer or hard science. And I think that was very effective. I mean, if I think about my squadrons of pilots, we had literally engineers from all over the country, and that's who was flying uh, combat aircraft in the Air Force. So they had a lot of math background, a lot of science background, and, and they were they were deeply uh, um, brought into that. And it really did help when it started getting into the network operations later on in my career. 
And you, I think you got your engineering degree at the University of Wisconsin, which I think you said was a really formative experience for you in terms of your, the later work you did as a negotiator on major international <laughs> nuclear security, defense cooperation, information security issues with our allies and coalition partners. Why was it so formative? So it, it, it was not something that I expected. I still remember walking around at uh, the University of Wisconsin going, wow, I'm not prepared for this. Um, and so um, it wasn't the, the schooling, because frankly, I had finished calculus at, at, at the high school that I'd gone through, because I still remember Sister Blaze, who was part of the Catholic school at the time. That was my, my calculus teacher, was the hardest teacher of my life, and I can honestly tell you that. Uh, but it was actually just the diverse of, diversity of opinions. You know, I, I came from... Uh, from the South Side of Chicago, which had, you know, it had its own problems. There was a lot of crime. There's a lot of different things uh, in a relative sense uh, uh, from that side. But the diversity of opinions at the University of Wisconsin of Madison across the board from the left to the right, uh, nothing surprises me to this day. I mean, it was fascinating to me and, and uh, kind of some good lessons in here. We all got along very well, too. I mean, there was people yelling at each other occasionally, but at the end of the day, uh, we still would have a beer together. We would still talk about things, but there was strong differences of opinion. And there was a, there was anti-military, there was pro-military, there was um, all different opinions. The world at that time was focused on on the fact that uh, we were closer during the Cold War to nuclear war, and it was it was really focused on the potential of tomorrow could be the last day, and all the different things that were occurring in there. And of course, the drug culture was pretty strong there in that particular time. So I was. I was watching all of this happening and uh, got to have to, you know, basically argue my points of view um, in, in a respectful manner and got to see other different views. And it opened my eyes to say, OK, this is uh, this is my view, but I get their point. And you know what? I think there's some place we can meet in the middle. And it's where I learned from a negotiation perspective, the word consensus, which is really a bad word to some people, but not to me. But I always looked at it that consensus was is where everybody walked away unhappy, but everybody walked away with something they could live with. So if you were unhappy with, with the end result, but you could live with it, and everybody felt the same about that, that was consensus and a win. And that's kind of where I learned that from. Back to you. That's amazing. Uh, and you know, you had trained in one way or another to be a combat pilot since age eight. What was it like to start flying and have the sky and the world open up to you and then your first glimpse of nuclear weapons and realize you were in second in command or charge of those nuclear weapons? Yeah, I, my first stuff, I, you know, I, I left college and I drove to uh, in an older car. My, uh, I'd always ask my mom for a car. He said, you can have a car, of course, when you're 23 and you can afford it. I still remember that to this day because my son does not like hearing that uh, because he's in college right now and he hears the same story. And so I, I, I ended up buying this car with a loan from my mom and I paid her back 500 a month But so because I started in the Air Force. But the story is I'm driving this car. It was an Oldsmobile Omega. I go from University of Wisconsin through Chicago, picked up some stuff at my home. On my way to my first day there as a second lieutenant, I drive through... San Antonio make a right turn towards Del Rio, Texas is where the base is, and it still is today, a training base. And I still remember not hearing a single radio station once I left um, Del Rio, or not Del Rio, but uh, San Antonio as I went further west. And I did not realize that it was so uh, unpopulated without folks that there was nothing there. I thought there was something wrong with my car. So it was kind of entertaining. I'm out in the middle of nowhere going, God, I hope I'm going the right place. I get there, and literally in 30 days, uh, the guy opens up the cockpit, gets out of the aircraft, 
and I am soloing my first jet aircraft. And that particular uh, jet aircraft, he he threw a, a bag of uh, marshmallows and he says, well, if you crash, I'll at least be able to roast the marshmallows afterwards. And I wasn't scared at all. I was excited as heck, uh, flew the aircraft. And and then um, a few weeks later, I went to the higher level aircraft, T-38. It's a, it's a fighter in some countries in the young, in the older days that's called the F-5 Tiger Shark. And um, it's a Mach 1.25 aircraft. And I was flying above Mach at that particular time. And that was pretty darn exciting. So as I push forward to that, I end up getting at my first base in the upper peninsula of Michigan. It was in B-52s at that particular time. I was a right seat pilot, the co-pilot, as you will, at that time. And uh, I was on alert. And at, at that particular time, there was um, six B-52s and six KC-135 that gave us air refueling in there. And it was my job to help check the weapons. And those weapons were nuclear weapons because we were focused on Russia. And we don't do that kind of alert today, but we did during the Cold War. And so I would go in there and I would check the bomb loads. And I still remember the first time I went into my bomb bay where I was checking each of the individual weapons on a, on a, a SRAM short range attack missile. And it was on a rotary launcher. And then I had four gravity bombs with that. And it took my breath away when that came and opened. You know, if you think about this, I'm this kid at 23 years old that drove down to San Antonio, Texas, then made a right turn to Del Rio. I go through pilot training after a year and I spend another eight-ish months, some of the toughest training, you know, survival training in the middle of, of nowhere, water survival, days at, on the ocean, and then in really good combat training and then ended up at this base. And I'm about 25, basically just about that. And I look in there and I'm second in charge of, of these group of nuclear weapons. And depending upon the load, I had anywhere from, from uh, 12 to 20 loads or 20 weapons. And there were six airplanes and I'm 25 years old. And, and I realized that all the things that I did kind of culminated on this, and this is my responsibility. And it took my breath away as the impact of what it could mean. And you met your wife while running out to an alert launch, yeah. flying a plane filled with nukes. Tell us that story. Yeah, I wasn't sure you were, I wasn't hoping you were not gonna bring it up, but yes, it is very true. Um, so she was the first uh, woman on alert at, at, at the base that we were at. So there was, if you can imagine, there was uh, uh, 60 people total, 59 um, uh, males and one female, and uh, that was her. And uh, she ran out there and uh, she was the tanker that would fuel me in flight. So I would, take off and we would fly up over the top of Canada towards uh, that time, the Soviet Union. And she would fill me up with fuel. So I would take anywhere from 100 to 200,000 pounds of gas at 6,000 pounds a minute while flying three feet next to each other. No autopilot, I'd add, and uh, connected together. And that's how the fuel would come to my airplane. And she was uh, an early uh, Air Force female aviator. Must have been hard to keep launch codes front and center in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to comment on that. Let's <laughs> let that move forward. Um, you know, I do want to point out to our loyal listeners that this is the first midair refueling of a nuke-filled fighter jet romance anecdote on when it mattered. <laughs> Thank you for adding that, Chip. <laughs> Actually, I think it's the only romance anecdote of any kind we've had, so I'm super, super excited about that. You've set a wonderful precedent. Um, so over the next two decades, right, you spent your time moving between flying, getting two master's degree, not one, and doing informational technology communication stuff at the Pentagon. Tell us about the things you're proudest of, the most important roles and accomplishments uh, in your career. Hmm. You know, we talked a little bit about this in the past, but um, 
You know, one thing I learned about myself um, in the B2 program, which is the stealth bomber, I was the um, commander of the 325th Bomb Squadron at the time, which was a, one of two uh, B2 combat squadrons. And what was interesting about it is, remember how I told you when I was eight, all I wanted to be was that combat pilot. And here I am in, in especially at that time, this is the King Kong aircraft in the Air Force. I mean, this is the epitome of, of really the best aircraft. It was by far the most expensive, most capable aircraft that carried up to 80 weapons. And uh, it was impervious to pretty much anything out there. But what I learned is something about leadership. I had 500 people, I had 27 pilots, that's it. And then the rest were all my maintainers. And it's really the strength of our services. Uh, I, uh, I found that my job was leading those men and women in, in there that were my maintainers and taking care of them was the most important thing that I had. Now, the young aviators had a lot of capability. They knew it. They, they had been well-trained. They had spent a lot of time in the Air Force. They didn't really need me, but those young maintainers did. And frankly, as much as I loved uh, uh, the, you know, the flying, and it, it is something to this day that I love every minute of it, it was leading those men and women, especially in the combat situations we got involved in after after uh, 9-11 that were really uh, some of the most proud points and how these young Americans came from all different backgrounds, came together. It didn't matter uh, where they came from, how they were raised, and they became a family. And that family took care of each other at a level that would make every American proud. I mean that. And under your command, uh, B-2 bombers from the 325th Bomb Squadron were the first group to strike um, targets in Afghanistan during the first days of Operation Enduring Freedom, the official name for the global war on terrorism launched by the U.S. government in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that moment was like and, and the days after when you were out there? You know, I think you had like a record-breaking 40-plus combat sorties during those first few days. Yeah, it was. Um, so what happened at that time was, uh, you know, 9-11 happened and it was it was shocking for all of us. We weren't sure what was going on at that particular time. And again, this is 21 years ago. And so after that, we prepared for a conventional strike. Because remember, B-2s are nuclear or conventional. And during this time, we were doing our spin up, which we did, you know, episodically to make sure that we could execute our nuclear mission. So we would do with practice things and it was all with uh, training weapons and things of that nature. But we flipped immediately to a potential conventional strike somewhere in the world. And um, I still remember uh, the, the discussions that went on that particular uh, timeframe because we kept spinning up and we weren't sure. And here's where the engineering started to come back. Two aspects to it. We weren't sure, okay, how long are we going to have to fly? Because it's a long mission from uh, Missouri all the way to Afghanistan and then potentially back or to another location. And so how long could the engines go without having oil updated in their particular engine? So we just did it the engineering way. We started running aircraft on long endurance flights to see how long they could handle these particular things and we would actually remove engines that were eat that ate oil too fast to make sure that we could exceed up to 70 hours if we had to uh, without having to do an oil change by the way the aircraft got updated with a larger oil tank afterwards given the engineering that we did out there building on this we also brought in the best um, uh, uh, docks that could tell us how to operate non-stop with minimal to no sleep 
for well over 40 plus hours. Some of the doctors actually ran some, some of the Olympic stuff and we would put pilots. Each of us was qualified that we were in a, in a, in a uh, simulator for up to 70 hours at a time. And that, that we would work through how we would manage fatigue because if you have to, you have to hand load all these particular ordinance in and you get very dyslexic after about 24, 25 hours of nonstop flying. And so from that perspective, there's only two people that can be in that aircraft, and it's a very busy aircraft when you're doing combat missions. And we didn't have the right communications. And this chit probably was the big one from a communications perspective. We basically had to design our own communication system, and the acquisition system uh, it was not responsive enough to be able to do something in the time frame that we did. So we literally built our own system. Uh, I still remember I flew a T-38 because we had two aircraft at high-speed aircraft at the time we used that for a lot of training and I flew it out there picked up some radios from the army that were leading edge uh, built out some things and I remember if I told you about that amateur radio and ham radio stuff we literally took all the engineer pilots and we built our own system soldered it ourselves built it in and put it in the aircraft it's still in there today by the way and it's still it's been updated uh, and, and and modernized but uh, inside of 30 days we built this in there on the 6th of October of 2001 we were not supposed to be flying that day. We were told that it was a down thing. We weren't going to go. And I was still in the office sitting there and I got a call from the COCOM commander uh, at the time. And I got a call and said, can you launch in four hours? And I said, you sent my people home. And, um, and he goes, yes, but we have to change that. Uh, and we have to go tonight. Can you do it? And I said, um, um, I, I sat for a minute. I go, can I put you on hold for a second? I kind of did an internal checklist in my head, thinking about where my people were, what was going to take. And there's this, my sister squadron had to be ready to go as well. The, the tigers. So we were the cavemen and they were the tigers. And these are all world war two names that were both squadrons that we basically inherited. And so I thought about it for a minute and I said, yes. And then I put the phone down and I, I paused for a minute and go, uh, holy smokes. And uh, picked the phone up again. And I said, I have a question. One more thing. What is the amount of risk um, that you uh, that you need me to take? And the, the four star said to me, Eighth Air Force Max Effort, which if you've ever watched um, the movie 12 O'Clock High, that is a very historical comment. So I said, OK, so we put it together. We launched in four hours and um, that team of the 325th Bomb Squadron and the uh, and the Tiger Squadron, which is my sister squadron, um, we we took off the the airplanes took off and uh, I used the, the word the call sign. Uh, we had an internal word that in the event um, uh, we had to do something very quickly. It was the term was chainsaw. So because we didn't have a lot of secure phones at that particular time, I I called my maintainers in immediately and we said the word chainsaw. So that was the word we used. They came in, flew in, and in four hours those aircraft were were ready to rock and roll and they launched on time. And at that point, we didn't have presidential authorization, so we were only to fly to a certain point in the Atlantic and then wait for his authorization. And that radio system we put in was the one that was going to help us through this. And at that point, we got it, and uh, we were authorized that night for the strikes. And uh, my team uh, went in there, and those were the, they started to be the historical combat missions going from Missouri, uh, spending about four hours inside of Afghanistan um, and taking out all the different things un- you know, we were on our own. There was nothing else, uh, the team. And then they went into Diego Garcia, landing in the 40-plus hour range. And then they changed out and came right back to here with us. All they changed out were pilots. 
came back to Whiteman Air Force Base and we and we turned and burned those aircraft and we did that uh, uh, for for several days uh, until all the major targets were taken out um, and um, kind of a small corollary. Um, it'll bring you know it, it, there's a lot of memories here. The teams put together the release web the release things on the on each weapon on their joint direct attack missions are uh, very precise weapons. There's a cord that when the airplane leaves, it pulls on the actual uh, fuse to allow the fuse to be activated. So the air, so the weapon doesn't get fuse activated until it's significantly from the airplane, about 20 feet, and then it activates, and then it starts to spin up that fuse. Those particular fuses, um, the, the the cord we put into a plaque and we gave it to the uh, uh, to the fire department for all the 300 plus people they had lost in in New York and the first airplane uh, that we got in the group that was over there was each of them were named after a specific part of the country it was the spirit of New York so so that was kind of the piece that we had there and we put a plaque on there so this never happens again and that was what we gave to the families and the fire department so. Uh, we could send the message. That was it. That's an incredible story and those memories, right? I mean, you can't believe how it just it's happened 21 years ago and it feels really like yesterday. And for you, I'm sure there must be incredible memories associated with those those uh, flights in and out of Afghanistan. Yep. It still brings uh, a lot of emotions to me, as, as dumb as that sounds. So. And so you spent you've spent a lot of time in the in the Baltics, ton of time in the Balkans. You've uh, you know been all over Europe in a variety of really really critical roles. Um, you know, talk a little bit about sort of that experience and 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 you know, especially as it relates to Russia and Vladimir Putin. And we can talk about Ukraine. Sure. So I had some I had some interesting times out there. Uh, they sent me to a school out there because um, they needed me to come back real quick to do some command, and it was called the NATO Defense College. The Air Force is really big on education. They like to get you various degrees at different times because they think that you need a break at times, and that break in academics to give you a to build out um, how you think so that you have a diverse of opinions is important. Uh, I still we had a, a chief of staff of the Air Force, Ronald Fogelman, General Fogelman, who was very big on making sure that we had a diversity of academics to allow us to understand the world and understand uh, the context of making decisions as senior officers. And so he was really big in this. And they sent me to the NATO Defense College. And it was just fascinating to me because there was two Americans and it was a, it was an enrollment Italy and it was very different school than what I had been to. I had been to what I would call academically tough schools uh, where I had a, um, my, my, basically an international poli science masters is one of them. I had a technical masters and a poli sci masters. And I still remember getting the 72 books a quarter and watching the shocks in the back of my car, <laughs> by the way, that same car that I started in the air force with, um, uh, go down in the weight in the back of the car as I had to go learn to speed read through all those particular books. This was different. This was more about human interoperability. I had to do a lot of different negotiations and I had to work with different teams, but we got to fly over the world. And I'll give you two quick anecdotes. We were uh, we were in Russia, and it was just me and one other American. He he was a Marine that had just came back from Afghanistan. I had been uh, multiple um, uh, commands all over the world, so we were kind of this was kind of despinned. It was a despinning for us when we were listening. This was in 2003, and they would we would fly through all different parts of NATO. And at that time, we had a better relationship with Russia. 
and we flew to Russia and I got to sit through their Duma, their Congress per se. And it was the, and it was just, uh, you know, we all sat through it and they were asking us questions. We asked them through an interpreter and, and the interesting part was um, uh, the one of their Duma members said that he was a general officer. So I raised my hand and he goes, yeah, go ahead. And I said, uh, so you're a active duty uh, Russian general officer, and you're in the version of Congress, if you will, the Duma. And um, he goes, uh, yes. And I said, can I have a follow-up question? I said, are you paid under both uh, things? He goes, yes, I get two pays. Okay. And I still remember my Marines sitting next to me, looked up and said, wow, that's an interesting version of military democracy. And the person standing behind me, who was the person doing the interpretation, wouldn't wouldn't interpret that. He was terrified to do it. I turned around and I go, no, no, interpret that. And uh, he goes, I can't. And I said, no, no, interpret it. So uh, we had a person in our group that spoke excellent Russian. So I had him do that. And I, I watched the look on their face and I knew not everything had changed that much there. So I got that perspective very quickly. Uh, uh, fast forward after that particular schooling, I ended up in, in a job that I never expected, honestly. Um, I was the uh, senior military advisor to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So if you can imagine, I, I came from multiple commands. It was uh, uh, just constantly running operations and different things. And now I'm what I would almost call a military diplomat, 55 nations. It's the largest group inside of um, inside the UN that runs things. It's in Europe, um, and, and, it's, and it's focused on a lot of things, uh, especially in the Balkans at that time, because... Uh, the Serbian, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, Moldova, all these different areas were simmering. So I spent a lot of time there. So suddenly I was focused in areas down there uh, that uh, I was not expecting. And frankly, schooling, um, my time at the University of Wisconsin, all those different diversities of opinion things came to be very useful because I still remember getting that assignment. And I called the senior Air Force person at Air Combat Command at that time. And I knew I knew it pretty well. And I go, really, of all the people you could pick, me, a military diplomat, it just doesn't fit me at all. And she started laughing. She goes, oh, no, we all got a kick out of it, too. As soon as we put you in that assignment, we laughed. But we said, you'll do good at this. And it actually was a very formative job for me that taught me a lot. And I got to have some impact on things that I never expected for, at that particular time to, to do that. So back to you, other Tishma. And and so your job was to deal with the Russians, right? What did you make of and 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 you had some quite a bit of uh, back and forth, right? Dealing with Vladimir Putin and and what did you make of him and and what did you learn dealing with the Russians? Well, we didn't deliver deliver directly with Vladimir, but what I did learn is that you know they're very there was still a lot of uncomfort from the Cold War, and 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 there was there was a group inside of that that absolutely um, were still licking their wounds from what happened in, in that particular arena. I also understood very quickly that um, this, that the way they think through things, it's very technical. Um, they have a very focused view on their future in history. And um, they feel that they were belittled, that they lost more than they should have. Um, especially in the group that we were dealing with. And there's some names that you would know today. And those particular folks 
were trying to claw back as much as they could where they could at that particular time. So what you basically saw was change that was occurring in a very positive way, but there was the old guard that did not want those changes. And it, it was very clear to me uh, that unless we, as the West, consolidated those particular gains, in other words, continue to teach these people how they can be successful in a Western way, help them transition from their old Soviet past, that they were going to uh, snap back into who they were in the past. And I was very worried about it at that time. I spent a lot of time talking to my colleagues about it from various parts of Europe, and they were focused internally. They truly were. They thought that part was over, and we did the same thing in the U.S. And I really think that we missed an opportunity to finish what was happening over there, and I say finish in a positive way, to train them how democracy uh, or a, a piece of democracy in the way that the West thinks can actually help their country and can actually make them a better part of the world and bring up the next generation of Russians that are going to be much more capable, that are going to be a better part of the world, and they can enjoy a, a level of prosperity that they didn't have then and they do not have today. And what did you make of Putin's invasion of Ukraine when it happened? What was your thinking, given all of your experience and all of your knowledge? That they're very isolated in how they think to the point that we had talked about. Uh, they're not listening to worldviews. They don't have that University of Wisconsin with a diversity of views from left and right. And they only have a group of leaders that are very tight with them. Limited access to the internet. Don't necessarily watch TV very much. So really don't know uh, what's happening, but only get that internal view from basically a, a single feed that comes to them. And we're actually believing their own rhetoric and we're trying to get back some of their buffer states that they thought that they had lost um, illegally, uh, irresponsibly to the West. And they wanted some of that back. And in particular, uh, the idea was to hide behind a view that Nazism was happening inside of Ukraine and that, that they needed to stamp it out and try to bring out that World War II emotions against um, uh, Nazi Germany. And in fact, uh, it was based upon very little data, but they started to believe it. So I was worried about the fact that this was only the beginning and that first off, if they won and did it very quickly, it was gonna open their appetite to next to the Baltics the Moldova, uh, all those particular arena, if they didn't win well and they got caught in the situation they are today, that it would open up the potential to a desperate leader who, you know, let's put it very, very pointedly, dictators, you know, do not do well when they lose wars. And that's it's just a factual matter. Um, and if you've watched the number of people close into his family, if you will, or his supporter group uh, fall out of buildings, suffocate, fall off of boats, you're starting to see the implications and ramifications of what's going on in that particular region. Absolutely, you know, at least six very interesting deaths, right? Jumping, you know, su supposed suicides, all of these senior executives and oil companies, and there's all kinds of really interesting thing going on. And in the meantime, you've had Ukraine make something of a pretty spectacular comeback in recent weeks as they're reclaiming some of their lost territories, particularly in the Northeast. And there's been some reporting on the fact that Ukraine has had 
special forces training. And so they're able to kind of use some of the advanced techniques of U.S. special forces. But I know there's a lot more than that. What is your analysis of the reasons that they have been so successful? Well, you hear a lot about high-tech U.S. weapons, which is a play in it, with plays in it. You hear about the intel side to it. But what I see there, honestly, is something that goes back to uh, two aspects here. Um, the um, discussions that we basically had before. First off, for the last eight to nine years, they've been being trained by Western forces, including the U.S., and it's not been on special forces just, but it's been on how to have a professional NCO, non-commissioned officer corps. Remember how we talked about in the, in the days after 9-11, how uh, my 500-ish maintainers that were helping put those aircraft together, the most advanced aircraft in the world, and making sure they were perfectly set for those combat missions, and they were, and they were extraordinarily proud. That kind of non-commissioned officer corps didn't exist uh, and doesn't exist in former Soviet-type militaries uh, until they've become much more westernized. And, and so what I saw is they took very well to the fact that, okay, we have to have a non-commissioned officer that can act with autonomy, that can think through things, that's well-educated, uh, um, that can be part of the team. It's not the generals running it. It's the generals giving strategic decision-making in that particular area, but it's that non-commissioned officer that's going to make or break, and that's the backbone of it. And the the example that I'll give to you that I will really drove home what I'm telling you right now is when I was at Whiteman Air Force Base and we were doing START treaty work and the START treaty, they come in and we would go and they would they would visit the base, that my base at the time, and I was a wing commander and they would go look through all of our nuclear weapons like we were supposed to as part of the START treaty and they would they would look at various aircraft. And we did three shifts a day. And at the end of the day, it's a big tradition on military bases. We do taps. And it was, you know, it's a sound. We have reveille in the morning, taps in the evening. And it also coincided with when a shift change occurred. And um, my 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 team would go home uh, uh, that was maintaining the aircraft at that will and, and some of the other parts of the base. And they would change out with the night with the night group. And it was about 4.30 in the afternoon. So he was observing all this, the my Soviet counterparts at that time. And they were watching it. And the taps go, the do 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 do, and then boom, people were just driving out the area. And he looks at me and he goes, uh, "Roberts, where are all these people going?" And I said, uh, "They're going home." And he goes, um, "But they're leaving the base." <laughs> and I go, "Well, they live off base. Most do. We don't have that much housing on base. We have some, uh, but we, but many of them live uh, downtown, and some are going to LA. They're getting school at the same time because we had a university down at the downtown, so it was it was kind of convenient." And they go, you let them leave the base? And I said, of course. Uh, each night they go home they, they with their families and they 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 spend their time. Now the next shift comes in. And he goes, and he looked at me, and this was the point that I, I, I understood then. He goes, how do you get them back? And I laughed at that uh, because I realized how different our militaries were and how much we had changed in our own military since the times of conscripts. But what you're seeing, uh, a lot of it in there, Again, they're getting great training. They're getting they're getting good weapons. They're getting good intel. But it's that idea of having a military that's professionalized, that you have an NCO core that can really operate on its own. Um, and the last part of it is they're fighting for their homeland. They're fighting for their family farms. They're fighting for their family businesses, for their brothers and sisters, for the people down the way. 
That's a very different battle to say uh, than the Russians are, are fighting right now, who were confused, who were not even sure why they were there, and their training is not up to par. Their maintain maintenance because they don't have a professional NCO core. They have the wrong tires in the car. The maintenance on the vehicles is not good, and because of that, it's a very different approach to operating as a team. It's not a team that's that comes together like a football team, and as as charismatic leaders that, that understands the mission, that can operate on its own, that knows the game plan. In fact, it's just it's something that is forced together that doesn't fully understand why they're there. And it makes a very difficult situation there. So what you'll read in the paper is all focused on the high-tech weapon, but I really think it's about the people. And I think the two biggest reasons are, frankly, they have professionalized with the Western training, their own NCO Corps, their leadership understands that. Uh, and they have learned how to operate autonomously on mission orders and to do things in a way uh, that lets them operate in small teams. And frankly, they are fighting for their grandfathers, their grandmothers, their parents' farms, their businesses, and their future. I have two quick follow-up questions, which is, given those reasons and the recent advances that Ukraine has made, and given that winter is coming, which is never very good for the invaders, what, where do you think this is all going? And is there any hope of getting to a, the, the, the word you love, consensus, and to have peace anytime in the near future, in the next few months. So we talked about consensus. Where can we get to they both can live with? That's gonna be the real challenge of it here. And so we haven't, you know, people are excited about the wind and I, I, I'm actually watching um, uh, the Ukrainians uh, move forward and it's, it, it is exciting, but this is not fully played out yet. And there's still options uh, that the Russians have. And I worry about some of those options, obviously. There's weapons of mass destruction capacity, whether it's chemical bio or, or nuclear, small tactical nuclear weapons would really open up a different game uh, in this particular arena, not to mention the environmental damage it would do. Let's say one of the nuclear power plants becoming suddenly a, a, a giant mess that would actually potentially affect large portions of Europe in some ways. So this, this situation is far from over and where it's going to go what is Lushenko going to do? What about Belarus? What's going to happen next in that particular area? Um, or is there going to be a coup in the near term that could change a lot of this? All these are factors that could occur. Can we get to consensus? Um, I think we can. I don't. I see a couple of options, um, but we need to have off ramps at a certain point where, where people can save some face, in my opinion here, and can move forward at the same time. Um, We've got to find a way that to prevent this from happening again. So there's a lot to balance here, and this is far from being fully played out. And you are correct. The invaders are not going to have a good time in the winter in that particular, you know, although I would argue in some cases well, they can't move forward because the, the ground is not frozen. And so it could, in certain cases, help the invaders. But in most cases, it's going to be a long winter because they are not prepared for that long winter from a logistics perspective, that is their Achilles heel. And the Ukrainians are exploiting that with precision. And the other question I did have was regards with regards to the nuclear threat, which you just mentioned, and given your deep, deep, deep expertise and background in this area, 
when you see the Russian missile that just a few hours ago, as of this taping on the 19th of September, you know, striking like roughly 300 yards from the southern Ukraine nuclear power plant, you know, or the recent attacks on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, you know, which is Europe's largest nuclear power plant, which has repeatedly come under fire. How nervous does that make you, given your expertise? Yeah, it. We're going to have more tragedy, Petra, before this is over. I don't. Uh, again, I still remember, you know, living in Austria. Uh, we used to have um, at the time. Uh, we used to always have the um, iodine tablets that we were given by the embassy in case one of the plants uh, over there um, ended up having a, a radiation leak of any kind, and we would be given an authorization to take those and our children to fill up your. Uh, you know, the, the iodine was to help prevent uh, further damage to your uh, to your different organs. And so we always had that available, especially at that time with old Soviet type um, uh, nuclear power plants. So what I see over there today, the, the two playouts could be a, a, a nuclear mess at one of the power plants, in particular, the one that you just discussed, the fact that a weapon which are not accurate to the same level that the U.S. is, was within 300 yards, it, that, that is just luck that it didn't hit it. Um, the fact that nuclear weapons, um, let's say a tactical nuclear weapon, could be used in that particular arena from a very desperate uh, leadership thing is another aspect out there. What I have noticed that's made me more uptight, we, what's really interesting about the START treaties is it taught the U.S., and the Soviets at the time and the Russians today, how to uh, have an ability to have rhetoric with each other, but not to walk across certain red lines, especially in nuclear weapon discussion. So we would we would send messages to each other pretty clearly on how we were talking, but we wouldn't walk across red lines so that we would not make the other country nervous in a nuclear realm because of the impact to the world. I see a lot of those older constraints removed, especially in the latest conflict and the discussions that you're hearing about nuclear weapons and or the power plant that we just discussed. And that is new, that is different, and that adds more risk to the situation, but it also shows we're seeing a Russia um, or a throwback to the Soviet days of a much more desperate situation that's developing. And that's why this is not fully played out. And I think that in the next two months, uh, you're gonna see give and take on both sides. And hopefully we get to a place where we can come to consensus and uh, we can start helping the people that have been displaced and all the pain that's going on on both sides. Over to you. So before we start to wrap up, I want to get your general sense of your view of the world as it is today with with this chaos in Ukraine and all of the, you know, the stuff that's flowing out of there in addition to everything else that's going on. Uh, you know, you remain an advisor to the U.S. military, to the U.S. government in a variety of roles. You are an advisor to a lot of commercial advisory panels. You are a, uh, a part of the Jones Group, led by General James Jones, former commandant U.S. Marine Corps, former national security advisor to President Barack Obama, uh, who was recently on this podcast. I would highly recommend that for our listeners as well. And you are, you know, advising governments and private bodies in a variety of roles. And so where where do you think we are headed in the next few months? Yeah. I thought we were supposed to end this on a, on a positive note. We're coming to that. We're coming to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in any event, uh, so what we're seeing right now is 
is is a world situation that that's pretty tense. Obviously, I mean, you've got two nuclear states, Russia and China, uh, that are both uh, in 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 a internal tumultuous and external. So in China, what you're seeing right now, you've got uh, a lot of change internally. You've got uh, a economic issues that are not fully transparent to the rest of the world that looking more and more very negative these days. A situation with Taiwan that is explosive because it is such a internal piece to them as well as to the rest of the world. You've got North Korea right now uh, trying to test their new submarine launch ballistic missile as well as potentially doing a another nuclear test which is going to open up more stress in the world. And you got to keep that in perspective. So you have Russia and China. So you know Russia physically is multiple times larger than the United States. You know, it, fascinatingly, China has, depending upon what numbers, three to five times the population we do, but in the same physical size as the United States. You take a look at North Korea and and, and South Korea, and it's like, it's, it's basically, if you kind of think about it, like Indiana against Kansas, I mean, the size, but yet, I mean, having a larger impact. And so we have nuclear weapons clearly in North Korea growing that it's a large tool it's a bit unstable especially some comments recently about the idea of if the if somehow the dear leader is taken out that they would automatically launch nuclear weapons uh it, it's new rhetoric and it's rhetoric but it's still it's still more uh unsettling in that particular arena you take a look at what's going on in the in the negotiations in Iran and we have a very unstable uh country in a lot of ways that's exporting terrorism around the world um, it's creating environments where where they would push instability throughout the Middle East and to the West wherever they can, and building their own nuclear weapons. You can argue with how close they are, uh, but if they end up getting a nuclear weapon and they're actually able to 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 demonstrate that capability, a lot of other countries in the Middle East are going to instantly want to have those, and because of that, that's going to that's going to really involve a lot more uh, unrest. So that situation is dynamic right now and that one is probably going to end up being the most explosive in the next couple of years but when you watch north korea and iran and china and russia and you put them all in perspective we have more risk going forward than i would argue we've had in decades and it really worries me from that particular perspective and i did want to end this on a positive note well, looking back on your life, what would you say to your younger self, you know, who uh, to your mother who took you to the Chicago air show when you were eight and changed your life forever, to your father, you know, paralyzed from the neck down, World War II combat veteran whose life and his past and his uh, achievements were in his duffel bag, a, a secret from you for 17 years. Uh, what would you say to them about the journey that you've been on? It's one that I didn't expect. I can tell you that right now. I was prepared for it um, by ways that I didn't fully understand. And I would tell you, in, in my opinion, God put people in my life to help me move that forward. The other thing I would tell them, one of the most important things I learned is that the strength of this nation is the people and it's the diverse opinions and they have to be respected and you have to understand each other. And I learned that, you know, basically having these discussions whether it's over a beer, whether it's with friends, disagreeing and getting someplace forward is really about learning and understanding each other. Uh, I think that as we walk forward, it's one of the lessons we can learn. Divisiveness is not something that's going to bring this nation forward. 
it's going to have to be okay left okay right there's a place to meet in the middle and this nation has done a lot of positive for the world and if we're going to continue to do that which i think we can and will then it's going to take us listening to each other from that particular perspective but the last thing i'd say to my mom and dad um i would say as much as it was kind of an it was not the standard upbringing for me, it was an upbringing that set the stage for the rest of my life. And in the adversity that I had when I was younger, um, it really did mold me to who I am today. And uh, I was very appreciative for the opportunities because uh, we didn't have a ton of money when I was younger, but my mom made sure that education and the different things that I got were as best as she could afford. And it was very much appreciated. And I would probably say to both of them, thank you. Thank you for my father's service and thank you to my mom for pushing me forward. But if you were to now talk to my wife and ask her that same opinion, who remember was also a, uh, a leader in, in, in flying in different areas and early time for women, she would argue that uh, my mother didn't hug me enough. And that would be her overall comment. Back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you agree with that? Uh, I'm not even going to comment in the middle of that one. I'm letting that one go, Tritra. I'll let that for the rest of the world to figure out. All right. Well, your mother raised an extraordinary uh, son, and I know she would be incredibly proud of you. Thank you for that, Jeffrey. And what would they say to you, do you think? <laughs> uh, um, if you knew my mom, she would say, remember that grade you got in junior high school? You should have gotten an A, not a B minus. Uh, that would have been the first thing, because that would be the first. <laughs> I'm absolutely positive I would have got that one. Um, and... Uh, uh, on that side, but I think I would have got a hug and, and she would have been proud of me. That's wonderful. And I'm curious, did you ever stay in touch with the recruiter you contacted at age eight and a half? No, I did not. I honestly, I did not. I was so moving forward that I didn't, but I got to talk to a lot more people at that time. And, uh, it, it, you know, the story was the same. They, they needed help. They needed pilots. Uh, it was an opportunity and, um, it was great. So no, I did not. I'm sure he kept track of you and is very, very proud of you. Thank you. It was. Thank you so much for joining me today and for this absolutely fantastic conversation. My pleasure, and I enjoyed it very much, Chitra. Thanks again. Major General Robert Wheeler is the CEO of Strategic Consulting Unlimited LLC and a consultant at Jones Group International, led by retired General James Jones. General Wheeler advises the U.S. military and commercial advisory panels on strategic issues of national importance, including geopolitical defense issues, cybersecurity, stealth platforms, secure 5G, joint all-domain command and control, and nuclear command and control and deterrence. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. 
Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.